Hi folks, welcome to the Motorcyclist Podcast. Joining us today is my good buddy who I haven't seen in a long time, Michael Locke. Michael, welcome. Good afternoon, Adam. How are you doing? I'm doing really good, man. Now, you've held a variety of roles over the years. Can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. I am uh, Chief Executive of uh, AMA Pro Racing, and um, uh, for your listeners, probably the best-known uh, product of that is American Flat Track, which, uh, uh, which I run on a day-to-day basis. We love American Flat Track Racing. What a series right now. It is. It is awesome. You know, I, I have to admit, I came to it relatively late. You know, I've been involved in uh, road racing and, and street bike racing for a long, long time. Um, but I'd always viewed flat track from afar until I had the opportunity to get involved in this project and company. And uh, man, I left it way too long. Flat track is the best. It is. You know, it's just the racing is really competitive right now. You know, we have a, a woman who's a top contender, which I absolutely love, in Shana Texter. You have all kinds of manufacturers that have now ent- entered the fray. Like, can you even believe the Austrians are there? KTM's in the yeah. race? <laughs> you, know, you know, Adam, a, a lot of people have been um, predicting the demise of the, of the motorcycle industry for a long time. People take great glee in that. But, um, but not only is it alive and kicking, but flat track really has got all the good stuff going on in it. Like you say, I mean, we have, um, I think, seven uh, active participating manufacturers in our sport, which is more than any other motorcycle discipline. Um, we do have Shana Texter, who's a very celebrated uh, athlete in our AFT singles. Um, she's notable because she's female, um, but she's actually notable because she's good. Totally, um, and, and and that's and that's the way it should be. She wins races. I mean, she's got a hundred percent record so far this year. She's won both races early on in the season um, at Volusia Speedway. She, that's right, at Volusia Speedway on the half mile, which is a wickedly fast half mile and very technical. And Shayna showed the boys the way home <laughs> in the first two races of the season. So they are all gunning to get back at her uh, next week when we go to Atlanta. Yes, next week round. I guess technically it's round three, correct? Correct. Technically mm-hmm. round three, even though it's only the second venue. But yes. round three, this is going to be an interesting, interesting one. This is another new uh, venue, if I'm, if I, if I'm correct, right? Yeah, you know, Adam, I love this one because um, it brings together um, a whole bunch of ideas. Um, and a whole number of variables in in our ongoing quest to innovate the sport and and not only keep it fresh but attract new fans. So we're going to Atlanta Motor Speedway, which a lot of people will know as being uh, the home of a uh, very famous uh, NASCAR Cup race weekend uh, every year. But they have recently hosted Supercross in the last couple of weeks, and we work together with the promoters of Supercross on the design of the track and uh, and all of the logistics so that they could run Supercross and we could take advantage of the dirt they'd put down and run a TT there afterwards. So this is collaboration across uh, motorcycle racing disciplines, which has not always been the case in the past, but um, but we're all sharpening the pencil now to try and you know raise the game and make the show better. So we're very excited to go there because it is dirt and it's asphalt. 
we're racing on the dirt and we're racing on the asphalt um, that is the road course. In fact, we're going to be using the start-finish line. So it's a kind of hybrid race that brings out the best in road racing style and the best in flat track. So would this be categorized as a TT then? This is categorized as a super TT because super there's two TT. different surfaces. A super TT uh, because we're using the two different surfaces and it's, um, it's more technical in many respects um, than a simple TT. Very good. So obviously all the vehicles are going to be fitted with front brakes, I would assume then, right? For a TT, we allow them to use front brakes, yeah. It's, you know, it's not advisable when they're just on dirt for the obvious reasons. Of course. I mean, <laughs> any, any of us, any of us who've, uh, who've grabbed front brake when we shouldn't have done know <laughs> that, uh, that on gravel or, or loose dirt, front brake is not a good idea. But, um, but yeah, we equip the bikes. We allow the teams to equip the bikes with a front brake setup because, uh, um, because of a TT. There's right and left turns, and there's a jump. That is awesome. A How fast is the jump? Do you know? Or what gear well, would you we take it in? We, we shall see when we get there. This is obviously a brand new course that we've designed uh, over the last couple of months and, uh, and 3D modeled it. And, uh, and we're building it um, this coming weekend in time for the racing next weekend. So how fast they'll hit the jump, I'm not quite sure yet. But uh, the, the, the angle of attack... Uh, and and all of the uh, topography of it is similar to the Daytona TT that we've run inside Daytona International Speedway for the last couple of years. So, um, so the exact nature of the track will be new to them, but it will be familiar. Who is the, the, the cool? The cool thing is that not only are the 450 singles um, racing on this TT Super TT track, which you would expect, but we're racing the big twins. We're racing the Super Twins, which are you know, 750 to 900 cc twin cylinder motorcycles um, that on a that on a dirt mile can get up to nearly 140 miles an hour before they have to peel off for the corner. And these guys are going to jump, so that's going to be a real spectacle. That is awesome. Switching gears, what manufacturers are involved in that premier class right now? Three manufacturers are duking it out in the Super Twins class. Um, Indian with their FTR 750, which is a purpose-built flat track missile um a beautiful bike very successful over the last five years we remember um, they they made that bike specifically for this competition didn't they they worked with that company in europe to actually engineer the engine yes yeah, swiss auto uh, yes. were involved in it and and also sns cycle were involved in it so um so indian reached out for some uh, outside help and uh, they obviously uh dealt with the right guys because the bike's been uh, supremely successful over the last few years, although an event like the Atlanta Super TT is going to be very unpredictable for them. Um, it, it, their bike will not have a lot in the way of advantages at a track like this, and a number of the road racing background riders we've got will have an advantage. So guys like um, James Rispoli, who's a, who's a well-known road racer to, um, turned flat tracker, uh, J.D. Beach, who was a flat tracker turned road racer, turned back to flat track. These guys who are not on Indians, um, Rispoli is on a, a, a XG Harley-Davidson, uh, entered by um, uh, Team Latest Racing, um, and J.D. Beach is riding the Yamaha, which uses a, um, 
700cc um, uh, uh, Yamaha engine. The MT-07 power plant. The MT-07 engine. I mean, it's heavily modified, but that's where it comes from. Mm -hmm. And he's racing for the Estenson Yamaha team, who are a a big footprint team in in our sport. So there are three different manufacturers in Super Twins. I think by numbers there will be more indians than anything else but at this race you want to watch out because you don't know who's going to win yeah 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 awesome awesome now why why haven't you know we've seen ktm join the 450 class what do you think uh the hold hold up is for some of the other major oems joining specifically the big class i i know kawasaki's got that that awesome 650 cc ninja parallel twin engine that would theoretically be good for this for this uh purpose yeah i think i think what you have to do is you have to um separate the 450 class from the big twins class Mm -hmm. it's relatively easy in the in the 450 class um that if you have a 450 motocross bike in your lineup you can enter i mean we swap over some suspension um and and wheels but basically, a 450 dirt bike that anyone can buy from a, a dealer showroom anywhere in the country is not far away from being um, uh, able to enter and be competitive in the 450 class. The twins class is different because uh, uh, teams take street bike engines and they put them into custom-built chassis. I mean, effectively, prototype chassis. Yep. So it's it's further Framers. removed from the street. Yeah, it's further removed from the street. It's a little bit more like MotoGP. Whereas uh, the singles is a little bit more like motocross, totally um, more production based. So, um, so the commitment is very high uh, to become competitive in the twins class, which is why teams like Estens and Yamaha and latest uh, Harley Davidson really are, um, uh, you know, really are um, busting a gut to be able to get competitive in that class. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Let's talk about Harley Davidson a little bit. So. You know, a few years ago, they came out with that, uh, with their water-cooled engine to compete more against the Indian, I believe, and they've kind of struggled a little bit. Are they finding their way finally, you think? You know, in racing, you never really know. Um, I mean, Harley-Davidson, for four decades, competed with what's probably the most successful racing motorcycle in the history of motorcycle racing absolutely which was the which was the xr750 which was not only a fantastic machine but has got iconic timeless looks absolutely harley davidson dominated our sport for four decades with that bike but you know what nothing lasts forever and when it when it was coming towards the end of the uh, of the XR's life, Harley decided they made a strategic decision not to replace it with another purpose-built flat-track race bike, but rather use a donor engine from a street bike and build and build a chassis around it. Yep. That's a lot harder to do. Yeah, I mean that they were brave to do that. I think, um, but their decision to do that coincided with Indian coming into the sport with a clean sheet of paper <laughs> from the ground up race bike and there's no way that harley knew what indian were doing or indian knew what harley were doing um they made independent decisions and and an indian have had the success and harley have had the learning curve totally you know, th- these these things go round yeah nothing stays the same forever so i would expect to see um harley davidson back at the top of the podium before too long, um, asserting themselves and competing against uh, Indian and Yamaha and all the other brands. You know, Harley's been doing this game for a long, long time. So they've had a couple of lean years, but uh, but I wouldn't expect that to last forever. Well said, well said. 
Now this round three at Atlanta Motor Speedway, now is this event gonna be open to, to fans, like in-person audience fans? And that is the awesome news. The answer is yes, you can buy a ticket and you can come along to the Atlanta um, Super TT. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, we, you know, Adam, it's been um, probably the biggest challenge we've had in the last 12 months is not holding races, it's being able to hold races and be allowed to have fans in there. Um, and we picked our 2021 schedule uh, around uh, a reasonably high expectation that we could work with local public health authorities, we could look work with local politicians and venues to be able to find venues that were big enough that if we had to socially uh, distance the fans we could do it uh, and with public health authorities who were uh, in favor of getting back to business as long as we followed protocols and some parts of the country that's been easier than others uh, and we were delighted when we found that we could work with the Atlanta Motor Speedway and all the authorities around there to be able to bring this big event to one, you know, one of the most important motorcycle cities in the country. I think Atlanta's the fifth biggest motorcycle city in, in, in the US. So we wanted to be there and we wanted to be there at a venue that was big enough that we could spread out if we had to and the fans could enjoy the experience. Yeah, well said. Georgia has a has a substantial motorcycling audience out there or people who ride motorcycles. So it's great that they have an event that they can go on to and check out some you know, fifth gear racing action. Yeah. Well, you, you look, you and I know that, um, uh, that Georgia, particularly the North half of Georgia has some of the best motorcycle roads in the country. I've done them so many times, Yep. uh, up in Blue Ridge and You're around right the there. tail of the dragon. Yep. I mean, this is awesome motorcycle riding and there is a real passion for street bike riding of all kinds in Georgia. And Atlanta is a city of 3 million people and has world-class sporting events at it. So it was, it's was it been a target for us for, for a long time. And we've raced in recent years um, at a half-mile speedway north of the city. And we've had some good racing there. But it's a compact little venue. And we knew that in a COVID world or even a post-COVID world, we needed to have somewhere where we needed a larger capacity so that if we had 5,000 fans come along, we needed to be able to seat them in a grand center, 15,000, so that we could space everybody out. So so it all worked out. Yes, yeah, so on that note, you know, what are a few of the COVID-19 safety protocols that American Flat Track undertook? Well, I can tell you we are fortunate that, uh, uh, that we uh, have a big brother, and our big brother is called NASCAR. And those guys have a lot of resources and a lot of reach. And when the COVID situation uh, turned into a pandemic, uh, we, we turned to them and said, what do we need to do? What do we need to write down? What do we need to put into our processes and protocols to be able to be taken seriously? And, and they helped us walk through that in terms of uh, temperature, uh, temperature checking, uh, in terms of track and trace barcodes into hard cards in terms of keeping the pro paddock separate from the public and being able to work out the logistics of all of that and so on and so on and so on. So we, we ended up writing a 40 page uh, COVID protocol document, which we uh, send to all the venues uh, that we want to go and race at and, and they submit them to public health officials. And we've gone through that and proven that we can actually operate those protocols that if we did have a an outbreak or 
or somebody ended up testing positive for COVID that we could trace where they were and who was with them uh, so that we could uh, contribute to that not getting out of hand. And that made a big difference for us last summer uh, of working with NASCAR to be able to fast forward our education on all, all these things we had to learn to do. And it stood us in good stead. That's awesome. I, I really I really appreciate you taking the, the fans and the audience safety, you know, and the riders and the racers and team safety as a priority. Well, you know, I mean, it's it's been funny, hasn't it? The last year of living through this and um, there is a broad spectrum of personal opinion. There really uh, is. All the, way from, all the way from one bookend to the other. Absolutely. And, and, and me and my management team here took the view early on it's not our job to get political about this. It's our job to run the racing and to find a way uh, of walking the path to be able to deliver racing for our fans, and but no less importantly, to be, be able to deliver a livelihood for the racers and the mechanics and the team owners and, and to give value for money for the sponsors. We knew that we had to be completely switzerland on all the politics and all the noise of it and we just had to find a way to run our racing and that that's the view we took from the beginning and and like i say i think up until now it's um it stood us in good stead excellent excellent now for the folks at home like myself who live in southern california how would we be able to 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 watch this race uh, you've got two ways. If you if you can't get to the event, you've got two ways of being able to um, uh, tune in and uh, and keep up with the action. If you want to watch it live next Saturday, and you want to watch all the practice and the qualifying, and I want to I want to watch it live, Michael. If you if you want to watch it live, there is one way to do it, which is to watch it on Track Pass, which is part of the NBC Sports uh, live streaming network. Um, you have to subscribe to it. But it is uh, cheap as chips. It is one ninety nine a month to get a subscription to watch uh, AFT Racing Unlimited Live and all the replays. So it's a great deal. And as I say, it's part of the NBC Sports um, live streaming uh, network, and it's called Track Pass. Um, so any of your listeners who uh, who want to experience some AFT and aren't doing so already, just Google Track Pass on NBC Sports and find your way there. Get your subscription and watch the best racing in America. If you don't want to watch it live or you don't want to subscribe to anything like that, then I suggest what you do is you check on your cable subscription, your cable TV subscription, and check and see if you've got NBC Sports Network. If you do, then you have access to our one-hour show, um, which is normally anywhere between three and seven days after the event, where we wrap up all three classes and all the interviews and all the controversy into a one-hour show, and that broadcasts on NBC Sports Network. Awesome. Yeah, I see it here. I, I think I'm going to opt for the $1.99 a month, cancel any time. That's just, yep. it's just too inexpensive not to use. It's a killer, killer deal. And it, and it is because... We've made a transition. You know, a lot of sports have got into streaming in the last couple of years. We've been doing it for a decade. We had our own streaming network called FansChoice.tv for a long, long time, and we shared it with uh, IMSA and, and NASCAR. And we built up an enormous bank of fans who would watch uh, AFT on their phone or their iPad or streaming it to their TV 
for over a decade. So AFT was right out in the front of this. But when we did a broadcasting deal with NBC, a, a, a more holistic broadcasting deal with NBC, we rolled our streaming into their NBC Sports app, um, and and the the, the transition is to a bro- is to a broadcast subscription model. But I don't think there's a, a less expensive um, live pro sports <laughs> a streaming model anywhere than AFT. We wanted the. Uh, the the transition to be as soft as possible for our fans and to have no argument about price. So we priced it super, super low. And you can watch uh, eight hours of streaming on Saturday night, all the way from uh, practice and, and qualifying all the way through to the main events, all for the same price. So it's a great deal. Awesome. On a side note, is the American Flat Track iOS app, is that still active for the live timing and, the, and scoring? Yes, all of that is still available and free of charge. That's awesome. I remember years ago I would go to the races and I would, you know, it'd be hard to see who's out in front sometimes. I would just have <laughs> yeah. that that iPhone app, the American Flat Track app going yeah, at the same you time. Know, and- if, you, uh, if you look in the grandstand during our main events, uh, you can see that half the people there are holding their phone <laughs> in their left hand and watching the race in the right and going backwards and forwards between yeah. them because that live uh, timing data is addictive. Totally. One of the joys of modern day society yeah. of going to races. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Nice, man. Nice. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about flat track, but let's let's go into, you know, you, you've been around the block. You've had some pretty cool positions and, and, and you know, made some, some, some interesting moves over the last, you know, couple decades. <laughs> uh, can we talk a little bit about your, your time at uh, Ducati North America? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I have been fortunate, I have to say, to have worked for um, really some amazing companies and some amazing brands. Who And I've been in the right place at the right time for all kinds of cool stuff going on. And I had um, uh, around a decade with Ducati North America. Uh, I was working for uh, Ducati UK, who were based in uh, Milton Keynes, England, which is right by Silverstone. Um, uh, race circuit and I was working there for them and uh, because I had had prior uh, experience of working in the US I'd I'd been with Triumph uh, over here in the 90s in fact I brought Triumph back in uh, in 94 uh, to the US and so I learned the hard way (laughs) the transition between Europe and North America and set up a dealer network for Triumph and all the PR and uh, and so on Um, and uh, when I was at Ducati, they knew I had that experience and they were having a big change in the way they wanted to do business. They were moving Ducati North America from New Jersey to the Bay Area, so about as far as you could possibly move in this country, um, to take advantage of the big California bike market and, uh, and it's where a lot of the industry was. And they asked me to um, uh, basically manage that transition and to grow the business um, this was back in uh, 2003, and it's it's a long time ago, but it's even longer ago if I tell you that uh, we were selling as many Ducatis in the UK back in 2003 as Ducati North America was selling in the whole of America. So in, in, can, in 2003? In 2003, wow. Ducati was such a tiny, tiny niche brand in the US. And, and if you go back then, 
you know, you remember bikes like the uh, the nine sixteen and the nine nine six, and and then the triple nine. Yeah, these I, were very very niche niche bikes for a tiny audience, and we all remember the Ducati guy then. You know, he had the cool leathers and the cool helmet and the cool bike, and you might see two of those guys at a weekend. And 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 Italy, you know, the the owners of Ducati had said to me, "We don't want to be Ferrari." Yeah, we don't want to be the guy you see once a month. We want to be a real motorcycle company in the U.S., and we want to compete, and we've got great bikes, and we need a bigger audience. So my brief was to grow the brand, and, uh, and grow the brand we did. Uh, and it was helped in uh, uh, 2007 because we introduced the 1098, and that was the game changer. I love you know, that, that bike. The- I love <sighs> that bike. My I've God. i still got one. You do? I've got one now. I have a 1098S. Uh-huh. Um, you might remember this bike, actually. It's a bike that we built. The project it was bike. The, the Martini bike. Yeah, remember? I think I rode it. Yeah. Right. Well, I, oh, I, I did ride it. it. My friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, have, I still have that bike. Dude, that's awesome, man. And 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 that, but that bike represented an opportunity to move Ducati from being a kind of niche, um, off-market brand that lots of people wanted one, but nobody felt it was really for them. That bike was the game changer because we brought it in um, at fourteen thousand nine hundred and ninety-five dollars. It was it was two grand more than a Yamaha R1. And if you spread that over three years financing, we worked out it was one Starbucks a week. Oh, man. I I love that bike. And, you know, that bike came out at the perfect time because you remember its predecessor. Like, I loved its predecessor, but 99% of people didn't. Well, I think, look, most people never got to ride. Um, a Ducati sport bike before the 1098. You know, it was, it was. I mean, apart from people like you and me in the industry and some well-heeled customers, most people never got to ride a Ducati superbike. They got to talk about it a lot, but most people didn't ride them. So you look at the 999, and the 999 was a very avant-garde design. Absolutely. Uh, Pierre Terblanche had this idea of these kind of mid-century locomotives you know these these and that that was what he tried to conjure up and it it divided opinion he did he did conjure it up he did i I remember i remember seeing the photo of the train that he there you go i saw it i'm like oh my god he he made the the train a motorcycle how awesome is that you know but you see but, but here's the thing like, here's the thing. You rode the triple nine. I rode the triple nine. Man, it was a it was a locomotive of a superbike. That old school Ducati be- L twin torque. Beautifully built. Beautifully yep. built. Yep. Powerful. That dry clutch. Oh you man! Had in- immense confidence riding that bike. But most people never got that far. And 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 the bike was expensive. And there were very few of them available. And what we did with the 1098 was we changed the dynamic. We we suddenly said to everybody who wanted to buy a Lita sport bike, guess what? You can have one of these. You might not buy one, but you can. Mm. You've, got to, you've got to take this bike seriously. You've got to take this brand seriously. And and when we had comparison tests in all the magazines, you know, against the CBR and the R1 and, uh, and the GSXR and so on, we were in the ballpark on price. You couldn't ignore Ducati anymore. And that was the game changer. And that was, you know, 2007, 2008, um, were immense years because we bought the 848 in in the second year and that was the you know that was almost the middleweight Ducati that bike kicked butt too 
Oh yeah, it yeah. really did. And then so you guys had, had the you had didn't you have the monster? The seven nine seven was just entering production around that too, we, I think, right? We, or seven nine six, I believe. The seven nine six, and if you recall, we also had the sport classics, the Paul Smart, oh, yeah, and the GT thousand. Cool, cool bikes. Absolutely, a couple of my friends have. They actually have those bikes. No one has those yeah. bikes, dude. Yeah. So so I I you know I was in I, I was at the brand during a very exciting time, particularly in North America, where we'd come from being a Ferrari into being, you know, something much more accessible. And, and, and I remember that very fondly, the time of, you know, Ducati went from being a toy into being something real. And that was cool. Yeah. If you recall, how many of the, how many units were you guys selling back then? If you, if okay, you remember. So back, back in, I remember when I arrived. In North America. In, in, yeah. In 2003, we were selling about 3,800 bikes mm -hmm. a year back in 2003. And in 2007 and 2008, we broke 10,000 each year. That's insane. So we tripled the size of the brand in, in a few years. And, and it was testament to the fact that the bikes were good. Um, and we were given freedom by uh, the factory in Italy to really market the brand in the U.S. And, and, and I was given a budget by uh, Ducati Corsa to go superbike racing. So we got Ben Bostrom and Eric Bostrom and Neil Hodgson. We, you know, we went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Matt Maladin and Ben Spees. I remember that. Didn't, didn't and, Eric and, Bostrom yeah. win at Colorado that one year, the road race flat track circuit? He won. Uh, yeah. He won know, that damn my thing. O my overriding memory, Adam, is of us nearly winning the Daytona 200. <laughs> we were, Eric was leading the 200 by a long, long way, and he got a stone thrown up off the front tire and went straight through the radiator and he was leading the race and so we had good times and bad times but the point being that we brought that ducati glamour and racing sizzle that everybody saw on tv in world superbike we brought it to north america and yeah. we had a great time and and uh and and it really did us the the, the power of good and uh and, and so that was a that was a great decade working at ducati north america that's awesome man well we're running out of time, Michael, but I want to thank you for, for catching up with me, man. Yeah, yeah, it's good to chat. And uh, thank you for telling us how we can watch the, the next uh, round three of AFT at Atlanta Motor Speedway. I'm downloading that app today, and I'm, I'm, I'm watching yeah, it. I can't yeah, wait. Look, everybody, tune in. If you haven't seen AFT before, you're in for a surprise. Awesome, awesome. Who's your favorite rider? Real quick. <laughs> you can't get me on that. I'll get lynched. I'll get lynched. Or I, I tell you what, all, all the riders we've got who come from towns that well, largely no one's ever heard of all across America, and these kids have been doing it since they were three, four, or five years of age. They're at the top of their game. They're all fabulous. Whichever one wins, I'm good. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. And everyone at home, if you want to see some awesome flat track racing, tune in to the Atlanta Motor Speedway round on Saturday, May 1st. I think the main event starts at, what, 7 p.m. Eastern time? Uh, that sounds about right, yeah. I think we have opening ceremonies and uh, and we get uh, into semifinals. Oh, I'm sorry, and, semis, uh, yep, yep. Uh, and, and we also have a new um, uh, a new thing this year that, uh, that your listeners might be interested in. It's called the Mission Challenge. And what we do is we take the top four qualifiers from Super Twins. 
we put them on the start line and we give them four lap shootout. And this happens ahead of the main event. Uh, winner takes all. There's a cash prize for it. You want to watch out for that. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. God, if it wasn't, if the, if the event wasn't sweet enough. Perfect. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Michael. We'll see you around. Yeah, cool. All right, Adam. Catch up soon. Yeah.